You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. And I know I said Happy New Year on the last podcast, but this is the first one I'm actually recording in 2023. So I feel like saying Happy New Year again. I hope your year is going great uh, and is off to a really good start. At Strong Towns, we are off to a very strong start. We're very excited about this new year. So many things coming up, our national gathering coming up. Lots of new stuff, including the Crash Analysis Studio. We've redone the Action Lab. There's so many things uh, going on at Strong Towns. But I want to go back a little bit to last year. Last year, I did a podcast uh, where I talked about some frustration I had in my hometown of Brainerd over a neighbor and a fence and the way the city handled things. And and I did this podcast kind of one of these late at night ones when I was on the road and it had a busy day. And a couple of days later, a friend of mine, Mike Hawthorne, got a hold of me and said, hey, Chuck, I'm really interested in a subsidiary topic. And I'm like, yeah, okay. He's like, I'd like to talk about it. I'm like, yeah, okay. Then he sent me some stuff he wrote. And I'm like, oh, damn, this is really, <laughs> really, really smart stuff. And we need to chat. Let me tell you a little bit about Mike. Uh, Mike is a principal of community planning and design at Community One. Community One is a planning, design, and development services firm. Uh, they operate with the principles of a green triangle, uh, tying economics, markets, and policy together. Mike has got uh, decades of experience. Mike and I met first at CNU and have stayed in touch and stayed friends. And Mike is a member of Strong Towns and has been for a, a long, long time. This is a podcast that should have happened a long time ago. Mike, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Hey, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm really happy that you are. You're in Utah, but where specifically in Utah are you at? I live in South Jordan. Uh, I live in in Daybreak, which is a new urbanist community. You know, you know me well enough to know how committed I am to this stuff. I about uh, 15 years ago, I moved from Arizona back to Utah. I had to choose where to live and. You know, my commitment was it was either going to be a historic neighborhood or daybreak just because it aligned with me principally. So, yeah, I've been in daybreak for about 15 years. It's been fantastic. It's such a beautiful city, actually. And I think one of the more interesting places that I've been to in Utah. I know this year I'm coming to Utah three times at least. (laughs) So, yeah, the, the League of Cities there. I did a thing with them last year, and they've got some ongoing work with Urban 3 and with with us that is going to bring me there to do training sessions two or three times. And it's one of the states that I find the easiest to work in. And I say that as a preface to our conversation. I think the subsidiarity model or the way of thinking about things is maybe more natural in Utah than just about any other place. Because from a cultural standpoint, I feel like people intuitively grasp it. I I don't know. Is that fair or unfair? I think that's very fair. I think it's extremely fair. It's, you know, most people understand that that culturally Utah is rooted in the Mormon religion. 
And within the, I guess you could say, the doctrine of of the Mormon church is a very strong emphasis on the protection of free will and agency. And, you know, one of the things that I think is is directly tied to subsidiarity is is that respect of agency because it 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 works from the standpoint of pushing responsibility to you know the lowest level of competency which then allows for the the execution of agency going down while also providing for support at higher levels in allowing that to occur. Let's start with that because I, I feel like you and I just jumped over a couple terms, subsidiarity <laughs> that people might not be as familiar with as the two of us. So maybe we should define what we mean by subsidiarity and give people kind of a starting point of of what the overall principle is. I've actually got the the dictionary definition up if we want to if we want to go to that. Well, maybe start with that and then give the practical one. Because I feel like you are someone who, more than my like theoretical construct of talking about this and more than like a Reddit thread, you're actually a guy who this is your job. Like this is what you're doing. You work with cities to create these kind of systems that work at the neighborhood level. So you're a guy with a lot of practical experience in actually implementing subsidiarity. So yeah, give, give me the give me the textbook definition and then tell me what it means to you. Okay, well, the textbook definition is it's an organizing principle of devolving decisions to the lowest practical level. Thus, smaller, more local or lower human associations have proper social functions, which should not be assumed by larger or higher associations. What I think is interesting to me is when you when you think of that that framework, and you think in terms of how our country was organized in terms of the Constitution, the Constitution doesn't use the term subsidiarity, but the principles associated with the Constitution are absolutely embedded in that. One of the other things as I've, as I've studied uh, the idea of subsidiarity is, is finding its, its ties within the Catholic Church. Um, subsidiarity is one of the social doctrines that's embedded in, in Catholicism. A quick Google search, you'll, you'll see link after link that are, that are tied to, you know, the Catholic Church and different popes actually speaking on the principle and the importance of it. You know, what I've done myself is I've, I've seen it, but I've also kind of embedded it in in my own persona that that it's it does tie to this uh, this aspect of protecting free will. Can I make a an observation? Because I am a Catholic, yeah, and I think it's very interesting because as we go forward in this conversation, I think a lot of people will listen to the words that you and I speak. And they'll hear things like devolve power. They'll interpret it in the frame of our current politics. And they'll think of things like local control and develop, you know, kind of an anarchy and deregulation and da 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 da. 
the Catholic Church has lots of rules. <laughs> like the Catholic Church, I'm doing the catechism in a year, and the catechism is like this thick, thick book of what we believe. And what there's a lot of rules of the Catholic Church. We're not talking about uh, a system that is, you know, I, I think in the modern political sense, quote unquote, deregulation, as much as we are shifting where decisions are made or who makes a, a decision, right? Yeah, it it innately infers that there is structure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in that structure, it's understanding where decisions need to be made relative to who, who those decisions impact. The other idea for me personally that falls into this that Andres Duani taught me is the correlation to time. That understanding that it's not just about who makes a decision, but also when a decision is made. Um, and this is where it gets into, you know, what I do professionally, because, you know, clearly if you're, if you're making decisions ahead of when the decision really should be made, I mean, it's almost a guarantee you're going to make mistakes as opposed to allowing time to weigh in on the decision and making the decision when time calls for it as opposed to front-loading it. You wrote that there's three elements of subsidiarity. There is a, an element of who is the competent group to make the decision. There's an element of what level that decision should be, should be made at. And there's an element of what time the decision should be made. I feel like maybe we if we could explore each of those, I feel like there's something to be learned from each of those. What do you mean by the, the most competent group to make a decision? It's one of those places where we get, I think, hung up the most in the practical sense, right? Like who should make this decision? Andres, likewise, I heard him give a talk, and I think it was in Utah, about the chicken problem. That's the example that I've used so much. How do you think about this idea of competency? It really applies to me where it 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 gets into my day-to-day -day professionally is looking at the the impacts of the decision-making aspects of land development and community building. You know, there's this formal process that we have in the United States that ties into zoning that really puts the a lot of the responsibility in the in the hands of municipal government. In Utah, there's a there's a delineation in the decision making between what is legislative and what is administrative. It's a very fine line because what what often happens as it, as it pertains to subsidiarity is city councils will hold back decision making responsibility simply because they don't trust their staff when in actuality their staff is probably better equipped to make certain decisions. Likewise, there's there's also this declension that that goes into the the world of of the developer. Decisions that really ought to be put in the hands of the developer because they're the implementers. Um, cities, you know, they don't they don't create their built environment. They rely on on the development community to deliver it. But in most cases, they will they will strong arm that process 
and simply demand that the developer comply as opposed to allowing the developer to make certain decisions, not understanding that the developer is subject to other forces. There's other policy forces that the developer is under, primarily the market, as an informal set of policy that governs what they do. When the decisions are made at a higher level, let's say at the city council level, and they're being heavy-handed, they're not allowing the other forces to come in play and allow the developer to make decisions based on the other forces that are governing their decision-making. That's, I mean, that's a unfortunately a very technical explanation. It's really where the rubber hits the road for me in terms of what I do day-to-day. I feel like there's a lot of states that we witness that reflexively take power away from local governments. And I think you've got the same dynamic there too, right? Where it's like, well, we saw, we saw this place over here, screw this up. And so nobody gets to make this decision anymore. Right. We're going to react to that. Right. We're going to set policy that will try and prevent that in the future uh, and in that process, they're they're building DNA that is is simply reactive as opposed to proactive in terms of delivering what what you actually would like to have. I think there's an analog for this in the corporate world as well. You know, as I live in a small town, you would think we would be dominated by small local businesses. It's the exact opposite. We have every national chain and we have no, like get a local coffee shop, get a local restaurant. No, it's all, it's all national chains. Everything is national all the way down. And so someone did something stupid somewhere in South Florida and that became corporate policy. And now that's the policy we have here in, in Minnesota, even though it's a, a different culture, a different place, a different approach. This is not a, you know, exclusively government conversation. I feel like this is a overall systems conversation. And a lot of the um, I'm just gonna use my word stupidity. I, I I don't know if I'm sure there's a more elegant way to describe this, but a lot of the frustration that I think many of us experience day to day with policies and procedures and things that don't make sense comes from the reverse of subsidiarity. Pl- places shoving decisions further up the chain of control or decision-making largely out of fear, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and if you think about that pushing process as it relates to free will, the, the higher it goes, the, the more infringement on a person's ability to, to choose occurs and in in some cases, people are are knowingly giving that up because they want to be taken care of, as opposed to being accountable for the decisions that that they make in their individual lives. So the second part of this, you know, we we have a competency. We also have this desire to push things lower. You, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what is the what is the benefit from of having a decision made at the lowest level possible? Well, you know, using using Andres's chicken example, it's it's understanding that if if you're making a decision at the level of of a block relative to to whether somebody can have chickens, that decision is being made by those that the that the decision is actually impacting. 
as opposed to a, a city ordinance that says, you know, thou shalt not have chickens if you're in an R18 zone. You've got to be in an <laughs> R R112. That's that's the the line of delineation as to where chickens can occur. It's it's recognizing those relationships in in terms of where the decisions ought to be made. I mean, you think of it in terms of in terms of HOAs a lot of times. HOAs can can be very heavy-handed on things. You know, when you can have your Christmas lights on your house and at what point they have to come down. You know, they're making that decision relative to the lowest common denominator not recognizing that the impact of someone having their their lights on is really who's looking at it. That's probably a facetious example, but it's, you know, it's it's that understanding that, you know, look, within the context of a neighborhood, there are things, decisions that, that can be made by those that something is potentially an impact as opposed to someone up higher saying, we're going to cut it off for everybody because of, you know, one or two bad apples 10 years ago. Let me dig into that that last point, because I, I feel like one of the things that maybe gets confused when we start talking about this is that you're contrasting a system of top-down decision-making with a system of kind of bottom-up decision-making acknowledging that both will make the wrong decision from time to time. And I feel like there's often this contrast between, well, the top-down decision-making has good intentions and it may be messy here or there or not work out, but overall it's it's good. And bottom-up decision-making is just so messy and it's not always good intentions and humans are so flawed I've always struggled with that because it feels like to me, the question should be, do we want our mistakes big and widespread and done in a way where we don't really learn from them? Or do we want our mistakes kind of localized where the people making the mistakes feel the pain and the feedback and they can adjust? How do you think about that learning process and making, you know, quote unquote, the correct decision this is not a perfect system, right? Right. Well, I look at it from the standpoint of, you know, my my personal responsibility in terms of growth is, is directly incumbent upon my ability to learn from the decisions that I make. And if somebody is making decisions for me, I don't have the ability to internalize the benefit of the lesson unless I get to make the decision. I think one of the ways that this can be thought of is is actually as a parent. You know, my responsibility as a parent is to help my child learn to be a, a good upstanding human being as they go into adulthood. I've incorporated within my parenting toolbox what I refer to as controlled failure with my kids. Based on their age and growth level, I will let my kids make decisions knowing that they're going to fail. But I know that the failure is safe. And that in that failure is a lesson that they're going to learn 
that will keep them from hopefully not making the same bad decision as they move forward. I think within the context of subsidiarity is is that idea that, hey, look, failure is going to occur, but if failure is small and if failure is controlled within the context of a given decision, it's not going to be the end of the world. And it doesn't have to be so reactive that you simply say, you know what, forevermore, we're not going to allow latex balloons in our house because Johnny choked on one uh, at one point. That to me is really where it becomes critical to understand that relationship between decision-making and the growth that occurs from the decision, whether good or bad. I've learned in my life that whether I make the right decision or the wrong decision, there's a lesson for me in terms of personal growth if, I, uh, if I'm conscious of, of that relationship. I'm comfortable with the family analogy, but I think a lot of people push back on it because they don't look at government as having any relation to what a family structure is like. Let me give you this and see how you react to this. There's this this idea of offering assistance seems like it's central to the whole concept of subsidiarity. And I think sometimes when people hear this and they 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 go to that devolution of power kind of thing, well, all right, we just won't have environmental regulations then. They'll do it at the local level. The higher level of government, the, the federal government, the state government, the regional government, the city government doesn't abrogate their responsibilities, right? Like, I mean, it's not like they're out of the loop. There is a, and to go back to the family analogy, there is a parenting role, not a helicopter parent, not a snowplow parent, but a, a parenting role that is more like a nurturing, advising, offering assistance kind of role in subsidiarity, right? Yeah. Is that how? Yep. How do you see that playing out? Like, how does how should that work in an ideal sense? I think ideally, it, it's it's one of empowerment. It's understanding that you're not giving up a degree of accountability in terms of just letting it go. You're you're trying to empower the lower level to to make good decisions and allowing them to grow in the process as opposed to just simply taking the responsibility and saying, you know what, I know better, I'm going to make the decision and you're simply going to abide by it. It feels like to me, I've not seen this done before, so I'm, I am speaking theoretically. It seems to me like a, a, a local government that is committed to doing this has more people on staff that look like social workers than look like geeky planners and mappers and uh, and technical people. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does, because what you've identified is more of a feeling relationship as opposed to a regulatory, you know, checklist. You know, you meet a particular criteria check, check, check. Oh, you don't hit it here. Sorry. And really within within the context of government, I think where government fails a lot of times is they don't necessarily understand 
who they are and what they want to be. And so it forces them to be very reactionary and very heavy in terms of how they how they conduct themselves, as opposed to being more feeling and saying, look, this is this is who we are. And because we we recognize who we are, we want to help you understand how to align with us so that we get to the same place. I've been on this kick of 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 listening to Simon Sinek's books, and I, I just got done with uh, Start with Why, and it it resonated with me because for whatever reason, part of who I am, I I demand understanding. If someone says you need to do this, the first thing I do is ask why. So if I understand what the why is then it it helps me to better better work with people and allow them to work their way into to to what i am you know i think that's a lot of times where where cities don't necessarily if you think of a city as a human being they don't understand they don't understand their why they're just reacting to everything well, I don't uh, I don't know what I want to be, but I know what I don't want to be. So I'm going to protect against this maybe until I figure out what it is that I I actually want to be and 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 work in that direction. Philosophically, and I think it's important to point out that we're two guys in our 40s with technical backgrounds. I feel like my early times in the engineering profession and the planning profession was looking at the city as a machine that could be fine-tuned, right? Like if we just got the the street design correct, and then we could overlay the proper zoning, and then we could, you know, have the right subsidy for the business or the home, that the machine would just turn and crank out success and prosperity. I have grown, and, and maybe this is me maturing, maybe this is something else, I don't know, I've grown to recognize the the organic messiness of it all. And to me, the, the, the organic tools look a lot more like gardening, social work, nurturing. I'm not trying to offend people. Uh, I'm going to say this in a stereotypical way. Less male kind of tools and more female kind of tools, like tools that would be more in, in the frame of a nurturing mindset, a more assistance offering mindset, as opposed to a strong arm regulatory, I've got the vision, I'm going to uh, direct how this would be kind of mindset. It feels like that's what people actually say they want until they get to the point of doing it. And then (laughs) it's really, why in your mind is this often so hard for us? Is it just because of the messiness? Like, why do we resort to the machinery approach instead of the organic approach? I guess is what I'm asking. Um, because I think the in the in the machine aspect, it's almost an autopilot. And when things are on autopilot, there's there's really no room to 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 make decisions because it's just it's just doing its thing. And when things are more organic. I've really evolved, you know, over the past, I'd say the past decade in 
really looking at the relationships more in terms of natural law and and the natural law relationships in terms of how they how they impact what we we should be doing i sound like a broken record when i work professionally because i i refer to zoning as dna i see it as one and the same in that it's a genetic code that dictates what your what your human habitat is going to be and in that relationship i've tried to i've tried to study how 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 the principles of how dna work can in essence be embedded within the the context of zoning and within that context is that that understanding of the relationships of the decision making process growth really can't occur within a within a a mechanistic system. It's simply doing what it does. There's no opportunity to to do anything different other than creating the widget. Mechanistic systems that can produce growth, but they produce growth and the machine turns and it produces the same thing over and over and over, which, you know, growth, if we think of that as, you know, a human metaphor, uh, humans grow in multiple dimensions. When you're a baby, you kind of grow physically and then your mental acuity starts to grow and then your intellect starts to grow and your maturity starts to grow. And, and eventually your, your bank account starts to grow. And like, there's all these dimensions of, of growth, your relationships grow. Like, but a, a machine is something that produces one dimension of growth at a time, right? I mean, maybe a complicated machine can grow in two dimensions or three dimensions, but there's no there's no feedback loop that makes it grow, I think in the way that you're talking about, right? Yes. Yeah, it's more it's it's more within the context of 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 the human being going from an, a newborn to a mature, mature adult. The growth is is both physical, it's it's emotional. You can measure machine growth in terms of in terms of the money that's generated by the widgets that are created, the number of widgets that are created within a, a period of time. But that's not the growth that I'm referring to. It's it's growth in the sense of of you know the evolution of of the of the person. And that's that that's where I think it it ties into it ties into nature. We, we would say a person is incomplete if they reached, you know, the age of 45 and had only grown physically, right? We can look at Tesla Motor Company and say they're growing because they produced 700,000 cars this year instead of 500,000 last year. We don't look at human beings or organic systems in that way per se, that there's a depth and a multiple dimensions. And you can actually have stagnation in one dimension in order to have growth in another. Right. Yeah. That's where I think it's critical to understand the role of subsidiarity because the minute, while while human beings don't grow that way, there are systems that impose their will on us as if human beings are widgets. I had this conversation yesterday with a reporter from the New York Times, and he was asking me about transportation funding. And, you know, my response to him was, 
these systems won't change until the money changes. Because when we pour all this transportation money into cities, every problem starts to look like a transportation problem. I mean, every struggle we have becomes a transportation struggle and you lose that dimension of growth. I mean, if we took a human being and we just funneled them, my kids do dance. We just spent all this money on dance all the time. Dance, 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 dance. Uh, you know, we wouldn't have kids who did reading or did math or did music or did literature or played on the playground. They just did dance. They would be awesome at dance. Like they could really do dance well, but they would not be like full human beings when they graduated from high school. I feel like our transportation spending does this to communities where it says you are an entity to receive transportation dollars and you should focus your effort and energy around transportation to the detriment of other dimensions of growth and maturing. Yeah. It's a conundrum because in order to, to dip into those, those transportation dollars, you have to solve the problem based on, on the requirements that are, that are tied to that. Right. Which then leads to, you know, your point is everything becomes a transportation issue because, you know, you've you've got these issues, but the way to solve it is being dictated to you that you need to check these boxes and the implementation or the delivery of of what those dollars give you. You know, we, we know from experience they're they're not necessarily taking care of the problem. They're they're potentially just expanding the problem and making it a little bit different. I want to ask you about a couple examples. There's a couple instances that I've seen, and let me let me just give you the first one, which I I think we just call the California housing example. There is this push to, and the critics call it making, you know, single family homes illegal, but there's this push to change single family zoning and do it on a broad scale so that you have a lot, you can build more than just a single family house on it. Basically uh, eliminate the crush of single family zoning, restricting all maturing and all change in a neighborhood. I've struggled with this because like when the state of California mandates this in a certain way, or the state of Oregon does this statewide, there's one part of me that recognizes that zoning is broken and tries to see this through the lens of offering assistance and you know, let's let's put more tools in the toolbox. Let's provide more flex. Let's let people screw things up and learn from it. And and the system is too rigid. There's another part of me that sees a top-down system not recognizing how zoning was imposed in this way or zoning, you know, they're, they're using the tool that created the stasis to try to fix the problem that they, in a sense, created with the tool. And I, I struggle with this because I get the practicalities of this being a machine and how you're tinkering with the machine to try to get a different result. But I'm frustrated with it because to me, it seems like the wrong model. It seems like the wrong way of both interpreting what the problem is and then reacting to that problem. How do you see this push for deregulation at the statewide level in terms of housing, in terms of, you know, in, in the lens of this subsidiarity discussion? 
Well, we're actually dealing with a slightly different example here in Utah right now. You know, affordable housing is, I think, an issue around the country. One of the ways that they've tried to deal with it here in Utah at the state level was back in 2019, they passed a bill requiring municipal governments to to bolt on an affordable housing plan to their general plans. That was kind of a first step. That is now evolving into a requirement for compliance with the delivery of affordable housing, which it hasn't quite happened yet, but my feeling, this is me kind of prognosticating, I think they're gonna start tying certain types of funding, probably transportation dollars, to compliance with affordable housing within their communities. Not understanding what 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 they're missing in all of that is yes, there's there's a need for affordable housing, but they're simply trying to retool the machine and assign consequences to not spitting out the right widget. Right. <laughs> not recognizing that that it's not just about, about delivering affordable housing within a city. Because we still have this overreaching problem of zoning saying, okay, if you're going to deliver affordable housing, you're going to deliver it in a in a condensed high quantity with in one given area. And um, yes, those people are going to have housing, but it doesn't solve all the problems that that people with that require affordable housing need because you're isolating them. We don't deliver our human habitat, our communities organically where we're allowing for a better mix. I live in a community here in Utah that is the exception to the rule in terms of what it is and how it how it delivers the built environment. It's not perfect, but it delivers more of a more of a mix than you would find outside of that. That needs to be more of the of what needs to be happening as opposed to look, you need to you need to deliver a a quantity of affordable housing or we're going to we're going to keep transportation dollars away from you. I feel like we've created a machine that builds cars and then we're saying but we don't want just all cars, we would also like, you know, boats. And so darn it if your machine doesn't produce boats, we're going to fine you or hold back the money or do whatever and it's like, well, okay, how, how do we how do we do this? Right, because the DNA of the machine isn't built to 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 do those two things. Yes, this ties into the other question I wanted to ask. You wrote a little bit about Agenda Twenty One on your website. Ugh. I know I had yeah. that reaction too because there's there's half of my you know neighborhood group. I live in a small town in rural Minnesota. Half of my neighborhood group thinks that Agenda 21 is like this big government conspiracy. And the other half think that it is some, you know, like global aspiring thing that's going to make the world a better place. And why do these loonies like uh, uh, fight it? And I'm like, this is just like a 
a, a policy document put together by a bunch of incompetent people. You know, like why why is this front and center? But the one thing I want to pull out of it, you point out that the document itself has a really good definition of sustainability, meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. That ties into Catholicism. I think the Catholic church would think that way. I think the Mormon church thinks that way. I think most humans think that way, especially people with kids. You know, I'm not saying people without kids can't think this way, but I, it's, it's very difficult to give birth to a child and have a, someone grow up in your house and be like, yeah, I'm really just about my generation and I don't care about the next. As, I feel like as humans, we're wired to think that way. It feels like the machine approach does not allow us to express that day to day. And I feel like one of the assumptions of subsidiarity is that humans actually believe this. Do we believe this or not? I mean, is this something where if you gave people the ability to to work at the local level and have more flexibility, would they just be about themselves in the short term and not care? Or do you think they'd actually have their better angels be part of that? Wow. You, you, you're pausing because I struggle with this one too. That's Yeah, that's deep. Let me give you one answer and I want you to give me yours. I think that there is a certain right, like fallibility of humans that exists across time. We, we, we see it. I mean, you can read the Old Testament and, and get a litany after litany after litany of human failings that seem very similar to human failings today. I, you know, we are fallen people. We are flawed people. We are broken people in, in many ways. It has always seemed to me like the antidote to that is a community of people working together. I, myself, feel like I am my best self or the best version of myself when I am collaborating with others and others that I experience day to day. I want to be a good neighbor. I want to be a good member of this neighborhood. I want to be a good member of the community. And not only do I want to be good, but I want to, in a selfish sense, be thought of as good, right? Like I, I want I want my neighbor to see me and not think, oh, that rascal Marone, I I don't like him. But I want my neighbor to see me and say, that that's a person that I I like. That's a person that I find, in Adam Smith's word, I, I find to be a lovely person. I feel like subsidiarity assumes that about people. And it's so easy for me to to, to fall into the trap at times of not not believing that in people, right? <laughs> um, you know, looking at some people in my neighborhood who are antisocial or or seem to not buy into the whole project that we're in this together. And, you know, I know game theory has some answers for that, um, but I struggle with, it is to me a cheap response to say, well, just have the federal government mandated or just have the state government mandated and then just have... Uh, you know, the strong arm of monetary coercion or the strong arm of, of police state enforcement uh, deal with this. But yet I know that 
humans at the bottom up level are inadequate and will screw this up often. And I struggle with that that back and forth because I don't think the top-down approach actually gets us to where we need to be, but the bottom-up approach does require us to be better human beings, or at least committed to a project of being better human beings. I don't know. What do, what do you think about that? I I agree with you. I think I think most people they want to do the right thing. Oftentimes, we don't necessarily know what the right thing is in certain situations. I think part of the problem that exists today is the the system that we live in is more it's not organic it's more of a machine and in terms of how I look at things uh, at a community building level I need to be able to live in a in a place that allows me to both mentor as well as be mentored and but what is produced are environments that are extremely homogenous within a given neighborhood. If if you live in in a suburban neighborhood, the homes in your neighborhood are within a set range of square footage because the lot requirement says that you can only produce 8,000 square foot lots over 20 acres. There's not a lot of room to, to mentor and be mentored in that situation. Um, the first house that I lived in, in, in daybreak, I lived in a neighborhood where I was, uh, three doors away from a guy that was extremely wealthy and frankly could have lived anywhere in the Salt Lake Valley, but he chose to live in a neighborhood where the housing was extremely mixed and filled with people that shopped at Walmart, Target, and Nordstrom's, as <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> opposed to a neighborhood where it was all Nordstrom's people. Right. That provided me an opportunity to be mentored by him during that time that he was my neighbor. Subsequently, there were people that I was able to mentor and 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 be able to influence in a way that allowed them to learn from my experiences while I was learning from his experiences. That's a more organic environment than one that says, hey, you're gonna you're gonna live in a neighborhood that is the equivalent of storage units for human beings. Right. Right. Mike, if people want to follow you and your work, I know community.one is the website uh, and community, the I and community is the number one. It is a terrible, terrible URL. <laughs> um, so I've, I've actually added a couple to make it easier. One is zoningisdna.com. Okay. Or mikehathorn.com. Yeah, we'll link to the website in the show notes, but go go ahead. I write professional blogs as a means of therapy oftentimes. And then that's and how then I, I started too. Yeah. yeah it's just, totally with I got I have to have a way to to get some of these out of myself so that I don't think that I'm crazy because I think a certain way. The way that I approach my work is 
is uh, is very disciplined in that, and I I lay it out in terms of what what I believe my core values are, and one of those is subsidiarity. I think it's extremely critical that our systems take into account the decision making process that subsidiarity allows. Most of it doesn't happen that way, but you know I'm. I guess hopefully optimistic that it that, that it can change and be more reflective of those those principles. If people want to connect with you, want to follow your work, what's the best place to do that? They can hit me on LinkedIn. I'm I'm on LinkedIn. They can follow. I have a, a community one Facebook page. You know, they can go to they can go to my website. I don't know. I'm I, I'm out there, and I I appreciate hearing from folks that are like minded because it, it reinforces that you know that's why I appreciate you know my relationship with you and others is you know we we align within a set of uh, of principles while we may not see everything the same you know there there's a lot that we align with and it's very helpful to to know that that there are folks that that I that I can go to and folks that think the way that I do and and you know we're we're out to you know to try and achieve best as opposed to just good yeah well mike thanks for taking the time thanks for reaching out oh, to me too you. i mean i always appreciate hearing from you and it's it's always fun when we get to hang out are you going to charlotte this year for seeing you you're going to be there I I absolutely hope so. It's been it's been a while since I've been at a, a a congress. It makes it a little more difficult when when you have to pay your own way to things. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> um, you, you become much more selective, but but I I'm very aspirationally I want to I want to be in Charlotte, and and hopefully if you're in and out of Utah, hopefully hopefully we cross paths. I'd love to I see. I would love you. that. I would love that. All right, Mike Hawthorne from Community One, thanks so much. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.